when you read through the New Testament, it becomes pretty clear that there would be, that there was, and that there would be a kind of ongoing mission to jeopardize the health and the testimony of local churches through the means of what we could call Operation Infiltration. Now Peter, in 2 Peter, he described the, the past and the present and future dynamics of this when he wrote, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now this happened in Israel, and God promised, even as Peter said, even as there were false prophets among the people, it happened in Israel, and God warned the people about this. You can go to Deuteronomy 13, and in Deuteronomy 13, you see that God told the people that apostasy, falling away from the truth, drifting from the one true God, could happen via a number of means. It could happen via false prophets. We see that in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. It could happen via family members. We see that in Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11. Or it could happen through individuals who are already successful at leading others, and in some cases, many others astray. You see that in Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 through 18. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, he identified, if you will, the behavior and the methods of the false prophets that plagued Judah leading up to the Babylonian captivity. Over and over again, Jeremiah is crying out to the people, calling them to repentance in one way or another. But there were these other prophets, these false prophets, who kept preaching lies and teaching lies to the people. But not only did they preach lies and teach lies, they lived hypocritical lives. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, verse 14, they committed adultery and they walked in lies. Jeremiah 23, verse 14. Also in verse 14, concerning these false prophets, we're told they strengthened the hands of evildoers so that no one turned back from their wickedness. And if you were to ask the question, okay, how did they do that? Like, how did these false prophets strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turned back from their wickedness? Well, a primary way in which they did that is found in the very next verse. The Lord says, they continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, No evil shall come upon you. These individuals, to use language from Jeremiah 23, verse 26, they prophesied lies, speaking the deceit of their own hearts. You know, when I read something like that, I recall how in 2013, middle of the year, I believe it was around July 2013, I saw an interview that had taken place, I believe the interview took place in 2012, where Oprah Winfrey was interviewing Joel Osteen during one of her life classes. Some of you may be familiar with this. And I remember being appalled when I had seen the interview, and if you know the interview, if you know what goes on during it, there's concerning things that happen during the interview. The whole idea of what happens in the Word of Faith movement, the positive confession, which is kind of like a Christianized version of the law of attraction, where you can kind of create destiny, create reality through the words that you speak, taking and butchering texts as though the Scripture teaches that when it doesn't. You could listen to the message that I preached called the prosperity gospel to see me arguing from texts that that is unbiblical. But one of the things, and the thing that really appalled me in this life class, 
happened towards the end of the interview. During the end of the interview, Joe Osteen was asked by Oprah to lead the gathered assembly in a series of I am statements. So, he asks the people, I don't remember if Oprah asked or then he said, I think he might have been the one, can we all stand up? And then he tells the people to stand up. And as he tells the people to stand up, he leads them in a series of I am statements. Now, there'd be problems with this anyway, but note, this is done among an audience that was gathered to watch a recording, to watch an interview that was done for Oprah Winfrey's life class. This isn't even happening among what what we might call a visible church, or what people would call a visible church. This is happening among many people who are not even professing to identify Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. So he has these people get up, and then he leads them to repeat after him, I am strong, I am healthy. I am confident, I am secure, I am talented, I am creative, I am disciplined, I am focused, I am valuable, I am beautiful, I am blessed, I am excited about my future, I am victorious. Now, if you're a New Testament Christian, do you immediately see the problem with that? So not just the positive confession-isms that we see in, in that, there's problems there. But to lead a whole bunch of people in the room, many of whom, probably like Oprah herself, would not believe, and has been publicly, publicly stated that she does not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Even though Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But to lead a whole room of people in declaring, I am excited about my future, despite the fact that the reality is if people are at enmity with God and not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, the future is a conveyor belt to an inescapable judgment where they stand before a holy God for their sins. It's deceitful. It's cruel. It's lying to people under the guise of lifting up their spirits. You may call it lifting up their spirits or being positive. It's lying. What the people needed to hear is the bad news of how we've rebelled against God, but the great news, not of declarations of who we think ourselves to be or want ourselves to be, but the declaration of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And despite what we have done, despite who we are, despite the fact that the scripture would say, apart from Christ, we are alienated from God in our mind by wicked works, that apart from being reconciled to Christ, the wrath of God abides on us. That's who we are. Apart from Christ, we are darkness. We're not light. We are darkness apart from Christ. But if you see how great our dilemma is, then you can see how great the gospel is, or at least begin to see how great the gospel is to a greater degree. But you can see how troubling it is. The implication to lead people to say, I am excited about my future, even if they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who died for their sins, even if they didn't display repentance towards God and faith in Christ, to lead people to say, I'm excited about my future and I am victorious, is essentially to say there's nothing for you to be concerned about. He might as well have said, even though tomorrow is not promised to you, and regardless of whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, let me tell you right now, you have nothing to fear. Be excited about your future. You are victorious. You see how serious that is? It's essentially marginalizing people's indifference towards Jesus Christ. Rendering it as inconsequential, even as you provide false assurances of peace where there is no peace. That's what the false prophets did in Israel, in Judah, during the days of Jeremiah, for instance. 
Well, these false prophets that were found in Judah in the days leading up to the Babylonian captivity were also found among the exiles who were transferred to Babylon. So they weren't only in Judah leading up to the Babylonian captivity. They were even found among those who had been exiled already from Judah. God spoke to and through Ezekiel the prophet describing these individuals as, quote, foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Ezekiel 13, verse 3. They were like jackals in the desert, the Lord said. Ezekiel 13, verse 4. In other words, they were essentially like scavengers, prowling about, doing people harm, not doing people good. They should have been building up the breaches, the gaps, the holes that were in the spiritual walls in Israel. You see that in verse 5. But they did not do that. Instead, they put the people to sleep, if you will. Putting them in a state of a false sense of security, with assurances of peace where there was no peace. Giving them assurances of peace when there ought to have been calls to repentance. So this happened to Israel and Judah. And Peter was saying, essentially, even as that happened among the people of Israel and Judah, even as that happened among them, there will be false teachers among you. It happened there. It's going to happen to you as well. That's essentially what Peter was saying. Peter proceeded to do essentially what Jude did in his epistle, describe the false teachers as well as the methods they use, their behaviors, the behaviors they exhibit to the end. And this is the idea, to the end that the people of God might recognize wolves among the sheep. That's a big reason why Jude was doing what Jude did and Peter was doing what Peter did. Some of you who are familiar with cartoons, you might remember there was a Ninja Turtles episode from back in the day where Splinter, who was a good guy, for those of you who don't know, and Shredder, who was like the main bad guy, they, uh, they switched bodies. Uh, having been in an inopportune position to be in machines that did that kind of thing. It was kind of a common thing that happened in 80s and 90s cartoons. If you were in that kind of machine, that kind of thing could happen. Well, when both of them came to, both of them saw that this could be an opportunity, in Splinter's case, to do some good, and Shredder's case, to do some bad. Because don't forget, Shredder's now in the body of Splinter, who was the sensei of the Ninja Turtles. So he has this idea, this is going to be great. Now I could infiltrate the turtles from the inside. I can destroy them from within. But what happens as the episode goes along, what happens is that the turtles say, you know, that looks like Splinter. I mean, it looks like Splinter. It sounds like Splinter. But he's not acting like Splinter. You know who he's acting like? He's acting like Shredder. So essentially, Operation Infiltration got stopped because they recognized the behavioral patterns of Shredder being shown in Splinter. So even though Splinter looked like Splinter, he wasn't really Splinter, he was Shredder. And that's kind of a point of what's happening here in Jude's epistle in 2 Peter. You have to know the behaviors. So even if you have a wolf in sheep's clothing, you could say, uh, I know you might look like a sheep, you might you know, even kind of sound like a sheep sometimes, but a lot of things you're saying are things that wolves would say. A lot of the ways you're acting, a lot of the ways you're living, that's a way a wolf would, re- would act and live. You need to know that kind of thing. See, if you don't understand what ca- characterizes apostates, then you won't understand why you should stay miles away from them. If you don't realize how serious apostasy is, you'll think, I'll chew the meat and I'll spit out the bones without realizing there's no meat to chew. And what you perceive to be meat is actually a toxic fake substitute. You know, and then what happens is if you see enough of this kind of thing, if you're under the teaching of these kind of individuals, you can adopt some of their ways without even realizing it. 
you go through Jude and you see some of the behaviors of the apostates and you could say, wow, you might end up downplaying the seriousness of sin under the guise of grace like they did. You might end up becoming irreverent in your speech just like they did. You might end up becoming somewhat anti-authoritarian even as they were, seeing yourself as a kind of law unto yourselves. Trust me, there's no good that comes from sinning under false teachers. God, of course, can use evil for good, but you wouldn't want to put yourself in a position to sin under the ministry of a false teacher. The potential problems of coming under the influence of apostates are legion, for they are many. Now, with that being said, we get back to our study of Jude and what Jude has been doing in verse 8. We saw Jude begin to describe the character of apostates. So he has, as we've seen in this epistle already, to kind of create some context as we make our way into the text, he's identified believers in beautiful terms. We see that in verse 1. He has this kind of prayerful wish for them in verse 2. He tells them the purpose for his epistle in verses 3 and 4. That he wanted to write to them about their common salvation, but he found it necessary to exhort them to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Why? See that in verse 4. For there are certain men that have crept in unnoticed who have been marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny our only God or deny our God and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, uh, two different words for Lord there, if you remember. One being a word that is equivalent of master, master, the other one being the word for Lord. And he's telling them, they've turned the grace of God into lewdness. Then he describes their end using examples from the Old Testament in verses 5 through 7. Then he begins to describe their character in verses 8 and 9. 9 is an illustration that he's going to use to further explain how they behave. And that brings us into verse 10. In verse 10 we read, But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Okay, so this is coming right off of verse 9. Verse 9, we see how these... False teachers are a kind of contrast to the behavior of Michael the archangel. In contrast to Michael the archangel, who despite knowing the evil of the devil, as well as the wickedness of his actions, he did not bring a judgment against the devil, nor did he communicate any kind of reviling speech, but instead he looked to the sovereign Lord to judge Satan, and he exercised his speech in a careful way, perhaps even being influenced by Zechariah chapter 3. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. But these, however, in contrast to Michael, in contrast to Michael in verse 9, these speak evil of whatever they do not know. So they could slander and they could make judgments about things that they didn't even know about, namely, in the context, angelic beings. They could do that. Such was their arrogance, even though Michael, an angel himself, an archangel at that, would not dare to bring a reviling judgment against another angelic being. So you might say these apostates, they let the words fly. They are sinking ships that have loose lips. They were ill acquainted with spiritual things, such as angels and whatever other things of God that they reviled or blasphemed or slandered. But that didn't stop them from spewing their pseudo-spiritual insight. It didn't matter that they didn't really know about it. But they spoke with authority as though they did. As we're told later in Jude's epistle, we're told a little bit later on in verse 19, that they lacked the spirit. 
And we know, according to Romans, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to God. These men were to use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, natural men who did not comprehend or understand the things of the Spirit. But again, that didn't stop them from speaking arrogantly or brashly or slanderously against, against such things. See the irony. The irony is that they were ones who claimed to really be in the know, that they had astute spiritual knowledge, when in reality they were ignorant. So here, to apply this to us, just by way of a quick um, kind of extended application, here we see a problem that shouldn't accompany Christians. Speaking speaking arrogantly about things that we don't know about. Christians shouldn't speak arrogantly, period. You look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Proverbs 8, verse 13. Proverbs 16, 5. All of those texts are reasons to avoid being arrogant, condescending. But we also shouldn't speak confidently of things that we don't know about. To do such is to exemplify the behavior of apostates, not saints. But they would speak about things that they did not know. And Jude wrote, he goes on to write, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So Jude is saying they did know some things, but what they knew was essentially the power of physical appetites. And they knew these things like brute beasts who give themselves over to instinct, to appetites, not exercising rationality, if you will. That's a kind of contrast that you often see. The contrast, as one commentator noted, between you know, rationality and between the kind of um, instinct, carnality-driven behavior. They think animalistically as opposed to sensibly. They have physical wants, physical desires, and they seek to satiate them. And in satiating those desires, they end up corrupting themselves. They act with what one commentator called brutish sensuality. Essentially like an animal in heat, engaging in immorality, to reference back to Jude verse 7. They knew the power of physical appetites. They understood that. And they gave themselves over to such things. Now as a quick aside, just to be clear, let me ask the question, are physical desires evil? Well, it depends. Some could be, but not all are necessarily. The key is whether our desires are under the control of the Holy Spirit. Some desires can just be in themselves sinful, and they need to be mortified, and we need to go away from such things. But all of our desires, all of our appetites, if you will, need to be under the control of the Holy Spirit so as to make sure that physical desires stay within the realm of God's boundaries. Now, these these apostates, apostates, remember, is essentially speaking of those who have fallen away from the faith, those who have gone away from the truth, they corrupted themselves in these things. Look at the language. In these things, they corrupt themselves. So the idea is, as they gave themselves over to their physical desires, there appears to be a kind of decomposition that takes place, a breaking down of morality as they debase themselves further and further. This is a lesson that our society has in great measure rebelled against. To the culture, freedom is found in debasement, in fulfilling whatever desires or fancies a person has or wants. 
A person is told, for instance, to pursue the deconstruction of their God-given identity, to attempt to reverse their gender presentation, to choose their own pronouns, to have relationships with the same gender, and so on, is an act of freedom. But in reality, it's the opposite. The truth is, according to God's word, it's to further entangle oneself in bondage. The, the, the truth is, it's like what these apostates were doing. They were giving themselves over to physical desires, physical wants, thinking that they're walking in freedom. But what was happening is they gave themselves over. As they removed the boundaries that God had prescribed, they gave themselves over the things they shouldn't be giving themselves over to, and they became further decomposed, if you will. They became corrupted. You don't find freedom in redefining what God has defined. You find freedom in grace-wrought submission to divine truth. Take, for instance, the lie that people are being told today. Young people, old people alike are being told the lie in this culture that you could determine what you are. Particularly, we've seen this recently, in recent years especially, a man or a woman. You can determine that. And I want to tell you, the good news is, you may have so many things you have to decide between in life, right? Do I get a mortgage? Do I not get a mortgage? Should I marry this person? Should I not marry this person? Am I called to do this? Am I called to that? You have so many things you have to decide between in life, and you will. But that's one thing you don't have to decide. God has already made that decision for you. And he has revealed that in your biological presentation and within just you as a creation. The, 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 the chromosomes and the dynamics of who you are reveal who you are. You don't have to Try to decide that. Feelings don't determine that. Feelings are transient anyway. Preferences don't determine that. God has given you a body, and the body is the revelation of your gender identity. So please, don't ever fall into the lie of thinking, breaking boundaries that God has prescribed equals freedom. It doesn't equal freedom. Freedom is driving, so to speak, on the road that God has outlined for you. Staying within the guardrails. Oh, it's beautiful. It may be hard at times. It may be hard a lot of the times. But it's the beautiful calling that you are called to walk out. It's a narrow road. No, it's not the broad road. It's a hard road in a lot of ways, I know. But it's the road you want to be on. Because if you go off-road and you think off-road is freedom, the truth is off-road is decomposition. Off-road is destruction. Now, as Jude continues, he sets forth another triad. Remember, we've seen in Jude's epistle that he likes triads. I've come to love triads as I've been going through Jude's epistle, and I love the way Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses triads. Here, he sets forth another triad, a kind of trinity of apostates, if you will. We see that in verse 11. In verse 11, we read, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So these are the shoulders upon whom apostates stand. Now before we get to the triad, first notice the pronouncement of woe. Verse 11 begins, woe to them. This kind of language is found in the Old Testament, New Testament alike. Jeremiah, Isaiah, you see Jesus use this kind of language repeatedly. In Matthew 23, when he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees and calling them hypocrites and so on, he uses the word woe. And the idea, when you see that, it's often described as the woe oracle. The connotation of the woe oracle is that these individuals who are spoken of within the woe oracle, or to whom the woe oracle is directed, are threatened with divine judgment. 
That's the implication. Woe to them. The threat of divine judgment, the wrath of God is abiding on them. They need to turn away from the path that they're on. That's the idea of the woe to them phrase. Now the reason for the oracle is found in the word for. Woe to them who? These apostates that had infiltrated the church. And I would argue those who stand on their shoulders subsequently. Why? Because they've gone in the path of notorious Old Testament persons like Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Each of these individuals had a deleterious effect on others. But let's walk through these individuals one by one so we can understand what's being said and what we are to learn from it. First Jude wrote, For they have gone in the way of Cain. So what does that mean? Very simply, it means they have walked in Cain's footsteps. And we provide a synopsis of what that looks like, and then we'll kind of unpack that. To walk in Cain's footsteps is essentially to walk in externalized, outward forms of religion, when in reality you are unrepentant, you refuse instruction from God, and you are envious, and perhaps even hateful, hateful to the point of even murder or persecution, of those who are truly God's people. That's kind of a synopsis of what it means to walk in the way of Cain. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we go on. We're introduced to Cain in the fourth chapter of Genesis. First book of the Bible, we're introduced to him in the fourth chapter of that book. Both he and his brother Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve, the first sons of Adam and Eve. Remember, Adam and Eve, we're told in Genesis 5, had many sons and daughters. So there's the answer to the question, where did Cain get his wife? Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters. You see that in Genesis 5. But they are the first two sons of Adam and Eve, born um, to Adam and Eve. And what we see is that we see that each, in Genesis 4, brought sacrifices to God. Cain, we're told, was a tiller of the ground, and he brought fruit of the ground. You see that at the end of Genesis 4, verse 2, and the beginning of Genesis 4, verse 3. While Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and he brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat. Abel's offering was accepted, while Cain's was not. Now, you do get the sense that Abel brought the best of what he could bring, and Cain just brought something. Now, some suggest that Cain did not bring the proper offering, that he should have brought a blood sacrifice. Perhaps we don't see that outlined explicitly in the text of Scripture. Uh, Both types of offerings, as a matter of fact, were part of the later Levitical system. You could see that in Deuteronomy 15, verses 19 to 23, and in Deuteronomy 26, verse 2. So they were both a part of the later Levitical system. And if, if both were told to bring a blood sacrifice, then in that case, Cain's sacrifice was a blatant act of disobedience. But we're not told that explicitly. What we clearly see is that there was a contrast not only between the offerings, and it seems to be that at some level, like Abel brought his best and Cain didn't, but there was clearly a difference between the worshipers. We see that implied in Genesis 4 when we're told, and the Lord respected Abel. And his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, we're told, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So Abel's sacrifice was brought in faith, Cain's sacrifice was not. Abel's sacrifice was an outworking of his pious heart, Cain's offering was an outworking of his empty religion. He went through the motions, and while the motions in themselves were likely to one degree or another, for some reason or another, off, 
his heart was clearly off. You see in Genesis 4 what happens. When Cain's offering is not accepted, what happens? His countenance falls and he becomes angry. What the implication is he's angry at God. God should have just been happy. It's as though Cain was saying, he should just be happy with whatever he got. He doesn't accept my offering. Why doesn't he accept my offering? He should be happy with whatever he gets. His countenance fell. God graciously confronted him. Graciously confronted him. Told him that sin was crouching at the door, desiring to have him. Desiring to rule over him. That he should rule over it. But instead, Cain was ruled by it. He was angry with God, and while not accepting, he's angry with God, not accepting his offering, as though God should have just been offering, happy with whatever offering he got, A. B, he despised correction and instruction. God spoke to him. God corrected him graciously. And he just didn't hear it. I would imagine, I would imagine, I can't say this for sure, but I would imagine that there was some level of hatred that he felt towards God, but God was out of his reach. Right? He, couldn't, he couldn't punch God. Right, His arms are too short to box with God, as that old saying goes. Right, So what does he do? He's envious of his brother. So he can't hit God, so what does he do? T- turns his eye upon Abel, a true worshiper of God. And then he killed his brother. And if you were to ask the question, and why did he murder him? John tells us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John says, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So what does it mean to go in the way of Cain? In a sum, again, to go in the way of Cain per what we see in the scriptures, and I say that because we'll see what Jewish tradition thought of Cain in a moment. To go the way of Cain per what we see in the scriptures is to walk in the pattern of empty, externalized religion. Right? It's to go through the motions without having a heart towards God. Which we see, sadly, Israel so often did in their history. Sadly, we could do sometimes as well. But to walk in the pattern of Cain is to walk in the pattern, unrepentant pattern of empty, externalized religion mingled together with an unrepentant heart, envy, hate, and even persecution of those who are truly in the faith and truly righteous by faith. That's what it means to go the way of Cain. Now, beyond the scripture, Cain had a reputation that was pretty repugnant as well. Uh, The Jewish historian uh, Josephus quoted in one commentary uh, he's referenced as saying, he incited to luxury and pillage all whom he met and became their instructor in evil practices. That's essentially what the apostates did. Peter Davids references the writings of Philo, the writing of Philo, and he goes on to say, thus Cain, as understood in Jewish tradition, became a good picture of the activities of the false teachers. So Cain's way is a reminder to us of a road that we must not travel. But conversely, it's also a reminder to us of a road that we must travel. In 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 11 in the first half of 12, John writes this, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. See, your way, my way, is to be the opposite of the way of Cain. Cain was jealous of his brother. He was jealous of his brother's righteousness. In this local church, and by God's grace among Christians, we are to rejoice in the righteousness that we see exhibited in other believers' lives. 
You know, this isn't like some competition. This isn't like the PGA Tour where we're like all playing the same golf course and we look up on the leaderboard and like, all right, who's in first right now? Who's got the best score? Oh, okay, Elder Joe's doing pretty well. All right, let's see. Let's see who's going to move up and take him over. You, you don't do that in the Christian life. You rejoice. If you see godliness in brothers and sisters, if you see people who are stronger than you in areas, it's a good thing. You know, unless you're like woefully, unrepentantly sinful in an area. You're like, they're better than me in that area, and I need to repent. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about seeing people growing in godliness. It's a beautiful thing. You rejoice in that, and then you're encouraged in godliness by that. You don't become envious. If God has blessed somebody or used somebody in a great way, if God's given them you know, more influence, let's say, to lead people to Christ or influence in their family or whatever, you don't become envious. You rejoice in the way that God is using them. God's sovereign over all. It's the body of Christ. He is the head. So you don't, you don't say, I don't like the way the head is using the body. You rejoice in the way in which the head is using the body. And you don't seek to hurt your brother or sister. You want to love your brother and sister. Not as Cain. Remember those words that he said to the Lord. Am I my brother's keeper? And we understand from a Christian perspective that there's a sense in which we are to be our brother and sister's keeper. Not in the ultimate sense. There's one who is that in the ultimate sense. The one who truly in the most ultimate perfect way did not go in the way of Cain, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who didn't slay his brethren. He laid his life down so that we could become his brethren. And he is truly the keeper of all of his brethren. He keeps all of his people to the end. So you don't want to go in the way of Cain. You want to walk in the way of Christ. And to walk in the way of Christ is to love one another. It's to rejoice in the good work that you see happening in other believers' lives. You celebrate the godliness you see. Well, Jude goes on to reference how the apostates also not only walked in the way of Cain, but then he goes on, second half of um, verse 11, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Now, the story of Balaam is a rather interesting one. You see that in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. You see a little bit of the outworking of the story in Numbers 25, and then you see it a little bit more in Numbers 31. And he's referenced a few times in the Old Testament outside of that, New Testament as well, but we'll get there in a moment. The story, I'm going to give you kind of a synopsis of it. It takes place um, post-Exodus. So during the Israelite journey and wandering in the wilderness, Israel, after defeating the Amorites, they approached the land of Moab. And the Moabite king, Balak, he became concerned that the Israelites were coming his way. He thought, okay, they took out the Amorites, we're next. So he saw himself and his people in trouble, so he sent messengers to court, if you will, the services of a prophet by the name of Balaam. And again, it's a very interesting account. The elders of Moab, they depart with the diviner's fee and offer Balaam some money to do something for them. See that in Numbers 22, verse 7. They offer Balaam essentially a job opportunity. Balaam extends to them lodging, and he took the night to seek God in prayer because they wanted, ultimately, Balaam to curse Israel. They thought, maybe that's the way we can stop Israel. We can have Balaam curse Israel, have God essentially curse Israel through Balaam. So he goes to God in prayer, and he gets a clear answer from God. This is important. If you're going to understand the story of Balaam rightly, you've got to understand this part of it. Because he gets a clear answer from God. In Numbers 22, verse 12, God told him, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse these people. For they are blessed. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. 
So word gets to Balak eventually that Balaam refused the offer, so he decides to kind of sweeten the pot, if you will. So he sends back men, and an entourage that's even more grand than whoever came the first time around, and basically gives the equivalent of a kind of blank check that he would honor Balaam if Balaam would do what he wanted him to do. Now what should Balaam's answer have been? No. <laughs> I... If you offer me more stuff and more honor, it doesn't change the fact that I can't do what Yahweh told me not to do. Simply, that, that's it. But he doesn't do that. He goes, I'll pray about it. You see the problem? You don't need to pray about that. God had made his will abundantly clear. This is key to understanding a story that happens in 1 Kings as well, between a man of God and a prophet there, but I'll save that for maybe another day. So anyway, he goes to God in prayer, and God had told him no in no uncertain terms, but he had his own will, and he was set upon it, so God gave him over to it, telling him to go. You see that in Numbers 22, verse 20. And God, doubtless knowing the sinful motives of Balaam's heart, you could reference Numbers 22, verse 32, was angry when Balaam went, verse 22 of that same chapter. Now, there's plenty more that could be said about Balaam. There are more ways than one that we could be tempted to walk in the unrighteous footsteps of Balaam, refusing warnings that God has placed in our way as we are on the way to commit some kind of sin would be to walk in the path of Balaam. That's what Balaam did. Even though there was an angel on the road and even though a donkey spoke to him, he still went about his business in doing what God had told him not to do. You can walk in the way of Balaam if you tell God, I'm sorry, I have sinned, even as you press forward to commit more sins. Numbers 22, verse 34. You could encourage people in sexual immorality, even as Balaam, who when he couldn't curse the children of Israel, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Jesus said that there were people in Pergamos that we're doing this kind of thing. It's language that basically comes from that text, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. But the way in which Jude states that the apostates patterned themselves after Baal, it was in that they ran greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. So money was what was driving him. These men, like Balaam, were willing to sin and lead others into sin for money. Now, this suggests, creating a little context of Jude's day, this suggests that these apostates, at least many of them, had a teaching role. That they were false teachers, not just people within the assembly that were doing harm to the assembly, but at least some of them were in a position to teach others. Maybe they posed themselves as traveling ministers, and that's how they crept in unawares, posing themselves as sound, doctrine-believing brothers and sisters, and they got welcomed into the assembly, did a little bit of teaching here and there, were supported financially, and then began to spew subversively their false doctrine. The love of money is a mark of false teachers. The love of money is a mark of false teachers. The love of money even marked the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees, we're told in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, were lovers of money. And when people love money, oftentimes they'll do anything for money. They'll sin for money, like Balaam did. He rebelled right against the will of God for the sake of money or some sort of you know, prestige and so on. Think of what the Pharisees did. 
They devoured widows' houses, Mark chapter 12, verse 40, for money. Peter wrote of false teachers who, by covetousness, would exploit those within the assembly through deceptive words, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. He said that they have a heart trained in covetous practices, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. And the text could go on and on. Look, it's not surprising. I think we know this, but we need to be reminded of this. So if you see somebody on TV who's not preaching systematically through the word of God, is not talking about sin, is not talking about the gospel and repentance, but is talking about how you could make money if you send them money. If you sow a seed, you could reap 30, 60, 100 fold. And it seems like over and over again, no matter what you turn on, when you turn it on, it's like, yep, they're talking about money again. Oh, there's another telethon of some kind where they're raising money and he's telling me to sow a seed. And they always got kind of interesting numbers that they're using. Today, we're going to use this number or that number. A mark of false teachers is a love for money, a preoccupation with. Because you end up talking about what you love. And if you are just in love with money, what money can do, the happiness money could bring, the substance that money could bring into your life, the freedom that money could provide, the doors that money could open. You're going to love it so much, you're going to want to talk about it because you just love it. And they loved it so much that they gave themselves over to sin over and over again for it. And this is important for us to know. Because you may say, I'm not a false teacher. I'm not on TV asking anybody for money. I've never told anybody to sow a seed to me or to anybody else. That's not me. But let me remind you, it's not only false teachers that can be driven by a love of money. It could be a rich person. It could be a poor person. It could be a middle class person. And anybody anywhere in between being rich or poor. You don't have to be rich to love money. You could be rich and love money. You don't have to be just middle class to love money. You can be poor and love money. You just That's what you want. That's what you think about. That's where you put your hopes and your dreams. Become consumed by it. A Christian is to exhibit the obedience of contentment. In Hebrews 13, if you were to go through uh, Hebrews 13, at the beginning of the um, chapter 13, it's kind of the concluding remarks of the writer of Hebrews. And after exhorting um, believers to different acts of, if you will, ordinary obedience, to let brotherly love continue, to show hospitality to one another, to entertain um, strangers, to remember those Christians who were imprisoned and mistreated, to walk in purity, whether one was married or single, the importance of walking in purity. We see that in Hebrews 13, verse 4. After that, in verse 5, he says this, let your conduct, and the language there implies, let your manner of life be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for, here's the reason, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our contentment, is to be driven by a preoccupation with what we have. Better said, with who we have, as opposed to what we want and what our flesh wants. If you are a Christian, Christ is yours and you are his. In the lot that you have, our lot is not ours by happenstance, but by design. Not by an unknown God, but by an ever-present Savior. So let me exhort you, however you can, 
Through the application of scriptural meditation and sound doctrine, fan the flames of contentment and douse the flames of covetousness. If you were to say, George, just practical Christian living here. If you were to say, that sounds good. I like that. But what does that actually look like? (laughs) Like, how do I do that? I'll give you some for instances. You think about what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? What, what plunged this world into the state of fallenness that it's in? At some level, it was covetousness. At some level, it was wanting beyond what you were given. God gave them every tree of the garden with which to eat, except for the fruit of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what drove the sin? At the end of the day, and we could nuance this and parse this out in different ways, it was a desire to have something that was not allotted to them. See the danger of covetousness? So that, you, th- you just start thinking about that. Think about the angels who left their proper domain that we were studying earlier in Jude's epistle. What led them to leave their proper domain and do the wicked things that they did? What led to that? Not being content with where they were assigned to be. And what should drive our contentment? Thinking about who we have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I give you that as an example. So you just start thinking about it. Let it marinate in your mind. And that's how you begin to have your mind renewed. And you start to live out being content as opposed to fanning the flames of covetousness. That's an example of what that could look like. To the end that you and I might flee the patterns of apostates and be able to say like the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4 verse 11. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That brings us to our last reference for today, the end of verse 11. These ones are described as those who perished in the rebellion of Korah. Perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now the account of Korah's rebellion is found in Numbers chapter 16. If you look in Numbers 16, you would see that Korah, as well as individuals by the name of Dathan and Abiram, along with 250 of the prominent men in Israel, kind of rebelled in this overt way against Moses and Aaron and ultimately against God. Their misplaced conviction that they had, Korah and company, is seen very well in Numbers 16, verse 3. What they told Moses is the following. You take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? As you read on in Numbers 16, you see that Korah and company have the priesthood in view. That's what they're really looking at. So they're speaking to Moses and Aaron. What they have in view is the priesthood. And thus, by the way, their argumentation is clearly ill-reasoned. First, Moses did not make himself the mediator of the Old Covenant. God made Moses the mediator of the Old Covenant. And Aaron did not take the priesthood to himself. You look in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, you see very clearly, just to use language from that text, he was called by God. So they did not take these roles upon themselves. They were not content with the roles that were given to them. See, Korah, for instance, he was a Levite. He had a responsibility as it pertained to the tabernacle, a holy and serious responsibility, as did other Levites. But they were not part of Aaron's priestly line, so they would not be part of the priesthood. So they had this important assignment, but it wasn't enough. And they wanted more. Moses saw it, called them out on it, basically, in verses 8 through 11 of Numbers 16. So they rebelled, Korah and company, against Moses and Aaron, and they led others to do so as well. And if you remember the account, they perished in a rather unique way. There was a supernatural opening of the ground whereby he and his family, aside from his children, interestingly, 
Uh, if you look in Numbers 26, verse 11, you would see that. Um, those were swallowed into the pit. Korah, his family, and others swallowed alive into the pit, and the ground closed over them. Numbers 16, verses 31 to 33. And then the 250 prominent men of Israel who wanted the priesthood that were told to take censers, well, they took censers and they filled them with fire. And what ended up happening was when they brought their incenses before the Lord filled with fire, they ended up being consumed by fire. You see that in Numbers 16, verse 35. And that's not the end of the matter. The following day, you go on and you see that the congregation, the language is rather rather superlative, that the congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, blaming them for the deaths that occurred the previous day. And then what happened was, I mean, this, that's just clear rebellion. God made it clear that he had appointed Moses and Aaron, but yet they grumbled against them continually. And then we're told that a plague broke out among the people. And it must have been swift. 14,700 people um, end up dying. We're told on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned towards the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar and put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So that was what that moment looked like. But think about that. Plague is happening. The plague is happening. Aaron starts to run and offer incense. He's standing between the dead and the living. And as he offers as the high priest who is designated by God to be the one who offered the offering, as he offers the incense, the plague was stopped. More about that in a moment as we close. The apostates of Jude's day neglected this warning, and we're told at the end of verse 11 that they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Notice the verb tense there. It's in the past tense. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. I think Thomas Schreiner is right when he notes it seems to function as a prophetic aorist communicating the certainty of the future destruction of the opponents. They perished, as though to say it's a certain thing prophetically, of course, outside of repentance. Now, Jude goes on to apply further descriptions to these individuals. We see that in verses 12 through 13, but we'll end there for today. And as we end there, I want to end with these closing words. If it was a serious act of rebellion... To rebel against God's appointed mediator, God's appointed high priest, although a fallen man, but nonetheless appointed by God under the old covenant. If that was serious, so as to warrant a plague that came upon the people, how much more serious is it to rebel against God's appointed high priest under the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And the Lord Jesus does not offer some sort of sacrifice that provides but a temporary covering for sin. He offers himself as the once and for all sacrifice to put away our sins forever. He himself is the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing offering for our sins. So I would say, why perish in the rebellion of Korah when you could live forever as a result of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why perish in Korah's rebellion when you could have life forever through Jesus' death and resurrection? You bow the knee to his lordship. And by his grace, you don't seek to usurp it. So brethren, I just close with exhorting you by simply saying, let us by God's grace not walk in the way of Cain. Let us love one another and walk in the way of Christ. Let us not run greedily after profit, even as Balaam and the apostates did, let us grow in the grace of being content with what we have. I think that's an important virtue to be embraced in these days in which we are living, nevertheless, what days might be coming. Let us, by the grace of God, not be like those who perished in the rebellion of Korah. Why unite ourselves to such a one, when by the grace of God in this moment, if you haven't already, you can be united to Jesus Christ by the grace of God through faith in Christ and live forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the, the great blessing of your instruction, Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that even as Aaron stood between the dead and the living, stopping the plague, as it were, with the offering that was offered, Lord, we think of our Savior, the one greater than Aaron, that, that great high priest, the greatest of high priests, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the one who stood in the way of the wrath that we deserve, as it were, absorbing it in its totality so that we might live forever through him. Father, we thank you. I pray that you would continue to work in us as a local church, that by your grace, Lord, that we might be instructed and discerning, that we might be able to discern apostates from that which is true, Lord, from from lies, from truth, from apostates to faithful ministers of the word of God that you, Heavenly Father, would help us to walk in the pattern not of the apostates, not of Cain, not of Balaam, not of Korah, but by your grace, Heavenly Father, to walk in the footsteps of Christ. And Father, we thank you because we know that we fall short of that. But nonetheless, Heavenly Father, having been forgiven and washed by the blood of your Son, we desire all the more to be conformed to his image and likeness. So would you work in us via the working of your word and by your spirit to the end that you might be glorified and that this church might continue to be built up in its most holy faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.